Chapters 5 and 6 of John Barleycorn or Alcoholic Memoirs by Jack London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 5 this physical loathing for alcohol i have never got over but i have conquered it to this day i conquer it every time i take a drink the palate never ceases to rebel and the palate can be trusted to know what is good for the body but men do not drink for the effect alcohol produces on the body what they drink for is the brain effect and if it must come through the body, so much the worse for the body. And yet, despite my physical loathing for alcohol, the brightest spots in my child life were the saloons. Sitting on the heavy potato wagons, wrapped in fog, feet stinging from inactivity, the horses plodding slowly along the deep road through the sand hills, one bright vision made the way never too long the bright vision was the saloon at colma where my father or whoever drove always got out to get a drink and i got out to warm by the great stove and get a soda cracker just one soda cracker but a fabulous luxury saloons were good for something back behind the plodding horses i would take an hour in consuming that one cracker i took the smallest nibbles never losing a crumb and chewed the nibble till it became the thinnest and most delectable of pastes i never voluntarily swallowed this paste i just tasted it and went on tasting it turning it over with my tongue, spreading it on the inside of this cheek, then on the inside of the other cheek, until, at the end, it eluded me, and in tiny drops and oozlets slipped and dribbled down my throat. Horace Fletcher had nothing on me when it came to soda crackers. I liked saloons, especially I liked the San Francisco saloons. They had the most delicious dainties for the taking. Strange breads and crackers, cheeses, sausages, sardines. Wonderful foods that I never saw on our meager home table. And once, I remember, a barkeeper mixed me a sweet temperance drink of syrup and soda water. My father did not pay for it. It was the barkeeper's treat, and he became my ideal of a good, kind man. I dreamed daydreams of him for years. Although I was seven years old at the time, I can see him now with undiminished clearness, though I never laid eyes on him but that one time. The saloon was south of Market Street in San Francisco. It stood on the west side of the street, 
as you entered the bar was on the left on the right against the wall was the free lunch counter it was a long narrow room and at the rear beyond the beer kegs on tap were small round tables and chairs the barkeeper was blue-eyed and had fair silky hair peeping out from under a black silk skull-cap i remember he wore a brown cardigan jacket and i know precisely the spot in the midst of the array of bottles from which he took the bottle of red-coloured syrup he and my father talked long and i sipped my sweet drink and worshipped him and for years afterward i worshipped the memory of him despite my two disastrous experiences here was john barleycorn prevalent and accessible everywhere in the community luring and drawing me here were connotations of the saloon making deep indentations in a child's mind here was a child forming its first judgments of the world finding the saloon a delightful and desirable place stores nor public buildings nor all the dwellings of men ever opened their doors to me and let me warm by their fires or permitted me to eat the food of the gods from narrow shelves against the wall their doors were ever closed to me the saloon's doors were ever open and always and everywhere i found saloons on highway and byway up narrow alleys and on busy thoroughfares bright lighted and cheerful warm in winter and in summer dark and cool yes the saloon was a mighty fine place and it was more than that by the time i was ten years old my family had abandoned ranching and gone to live in the city and here at ten i began on the streets as a newsboy one of the reasons for this was that we needed the money another reason was that i needed the exercise i had found my way to the free public library and was reading myself into nervous prostration on the poor ranches on which i had lived there had been no books in ways truly miraculous i had been lent four books marvellous books and them i had devoured one was the life of garfield the second paul de chaloux's african travels the third a novel by ouida with the last forty pages missing and the fourth irving's alhambra this last had been lent me by a school-teacher i was not a forward child unlike oliver twist i was incapable of asking for more when i returned the alhambra to the teacher i hoped she would lend me another book and because she did not most likely she deemed me unappreciative i cried all the way home on the three-mile tramp from the school to the ranch i waited and yearned for her to lend me another book 
scores of times i nerved myself almost to the point of asking her but never quite reached the necessary pitch of effrontery and then came the city of oakland and on the shelves of that free library i discovered all the great world beyond the skyline here were thousands of books as good as my four wonder books and some were even better libraries were not concerned with children in those days and i had strange adventures i remember in the catalogue being impressed by the title the adventures of peregrine pickle i filed an application blank and the librarian handed me the collected and entirely unexpurgated works of smollett in one huge volume i read everything but principally history and adventure and all the old travels and voyages i read mornings afternoons and nights i read in bed i read at table i read as i walked to and from school and i read at recess while the other boys were playing i began to get the jerks to everybody i replied go away you make me nervous and so at ten i was out on the streets a newsboy i had no time to read i was busy getting exercise and learning how to fight busy learning forwardness and brass and bluff i had an imagination and a curiosity about all things that made me plastic not least among the things i was curious about was the saloon and i was in and out of many a one i remember in those days on the east side of broadway between sixth and seventh from corner to corner there was a solid block of saloons in the saloons life was different men talked with great voices laughed great laughs and there was an atmosphere of greatness here was something more than common every day where nothing happened here life was always very live and sometimes even lurid when blows were struck and blood was shed and big policemen came shouldering in great moments there for me my head filled with all the wild and valiant fighting of the gallant adventurers on sea and land there were no big moments when i trudged along the street throwing my papers in at doors but in the saloons even the sots stupefied sprawling across the tables or in the sawdust were objects of mystery and wonder and more the saloons were right the city fathers sanctioned them and licensed them they were not the terrible places i heard boys deem them who lacked my opportunities to know terrible they might be but then that only meant they were terribly wonderful and it is the terribly wonderful that a boy desires to know in the same way pirates and shipwrecks and battles were terrible 
and what healthy boy wouldn't give his immortal soul to participate in such affairs besides in saloons i saw reporters editors lawyers judges whose names and faces i knew they put the seal of social approval on the saloon they verified my own feeling of fascination in the saloon they too must have found there that something different that something beyond which i sensed and groped after what it was i did not know yet there it must be for there men focused like buzzing flies about a honey-pot i had no sorrows and the world was very bright so i could not guess that what these men sought was forgetfulness of jaded toil and stale grief not that i drank at that time from ten to fifteen i rarely tasted liquor but i was intimately in contact with drinkers and drinking places the only reason i did not drink was because i didn't like the stuff as the time passed i worked as boy helper on an ice wagon set up pins in a bowling alley with a saloon attached and swept out saloons at sunday picnic grounds big jovial josie harper ran a roadhouse at telegraph avenue and thirty-ninth street here for a year i delivered an evening paper until my route was changed to the waterfront and tenderloin of oakland the first month when i collected josie harper's bill she poured me a glass of wine i was ashamed to refuse so i drank it but after that i watched the chance when she wasn't around so as to collect from her barkeeper the first day i worked in the bowling alley the barkeeper according to custom called us boys up to have a drink after we had been setting up pins for several hours the others asked for beer i said i'd take ginger ale the boys snickered and i noticed the barkeeper favored me with a strange searching scrutiny nevertheless he opened a bottle of ginger ale afterward back in the alleys in the pauses between games the boys enlightened me i had offended the barkeeper a bottle of ginger ale cost the saloon ever so much more than a glass of steam beer and it was up to me if i wanted to hold my job to drink beer besides beer was food i could work better on it there was no food in ginger ale after that when i couldn't sneak out of it i drank beer and wondered what men found in it that was so good i was always aware that i was missing something what i really liked in those days was candy for five cents i could buy five cannonballs big lumps of the most delicious lastingness i could chew and worry a single one 
for an hour. Then there was a Mexican who sold big slabs of brown chewing taffy for five cents each. It required a quarter of a day properly to absorb one of them. And many a day I made my entire lunch off one of those slabs. In truth, I found food there, but not in beer. Chapter 6 but the time was rapidly drawing near when I was to begin my second series of bouts with John Barleycorn. When I was fourteen, my head filled with the tales of the old voyagers, my mind with tropical isles and far sea rims, I was sailing a small centerboard skiff around San Francisco Bay and on the Oakland Estuary. I wanted to go to sea. I wanted to get away from monotony and the commonplace. I was in the flower of my adolescence, a thrill with romance and adventure, dreaming of wild life in the wild man-world. Little I guessed how all the warp and woof of that man-world was entangled with alcohol. So one day, as I hoisted sail on my skiff, I met Scotty. He was a husky youngster of seventeen, a runaway apprentice, he told me, from an English ship in Australia. He had just worked his way on another ship to San Francisco, and now he wanted to see about getting a berth on a whaler. Across the estuary, near where the whalers lay, was lying the sloop-yacht Idler. The caretaker was a harpooner who intended sailing next voyage on the whale-ship Bonanza. Would I take him, Scotty, over in my skiff to call upon the harpooner? Would I? Hadn't I heard the stories and rumors about the idler? The big sloop that had come up from the Sandwich Islands where it had been engaged in smuggling opium. And the harpooner who was caretaker. How often had I seen him and envied him his freedom. He never had to leave the water. He slept aboard the idler each night while I had to go home upon the land to go to bed. The harpooner was only nineteen years old, and I have never had anything but his own word that he was a harpooner, but he had been too shining and glorious a personality for me ever to address as I paddled around the yacht at a wistful distance. Would I take Scotty, the runaway sailor, to visit the harpooner on the opium smuggler idler? Would I? The harpooner came on deck to answer our hail, and invited us aboard. I played the sailor and the man, fending off the skiff so that it would not mar the yacht's white paint, dropping the skiff astern on a long painter, and making the painter fast with two 
nonchalant half-hitches. We went below. It was the first sea interior I had ever seen. The clothing on the wall smelled musty, but what of that? Was it not the sea gear of men? Leather jackets lined with corduroy, blue coats of pilot cloth, sou'westers, sea boots, oilskins. And everywhere was in evidence the economy of space, the narrow bunks, the swinging tables, the incredible lockers. There were the tell-tale compass, the sea lamps in their gimbals, the blue-back charts carelessly rolled and tucked away, the signal flags in alphabetical order, and a mariner's dividers jammed into the woodwork to hold a calendar. At last I was living. Here I sat, inside my first ship, a smuggler, accepted as a comrade by a harpooner and a runaway English sailor who said his name was Scotty. The first thing that the harpooner, aged nineteen, and the sailor, aged seventeen, did to show that they were men was to behave like men. The harpooner suggested the eminent desirableness of a drink, and Scotty searched his pockets for dimes and nickels. Then the harpooner carried away a pink flask to be filled in some blind pig, for there were no licensed saloons in that locality. We drank the cheap rotgut out of tumblers. Was I any the less strong, any the less valiant than the harpooner and the sailor? They were men. They proved it by the way they drank. Drink was the badge of manhood. So I drank with them, drink by drink, raw and straight, though the damned stuff couldn't compare with a stick of chewing taffy or a delectable cannonball. I shuddered and swallowed my gorge with every drink, though I manfully hid all such symptoms. Diverse times we filled the flask that afternoon. All I had was twenty cents, but I put it up like a man, though with secret regret at the enormous store of candy it could have bought. The liquor mounted in the heads of all of us, and the talk of Scotty and the harpooner was upon running the easting down, gales off the horn, and pamperos off the plat, lower topsail breezes, southerly busters, north pacific gales, and of smashed whaleboats in the arctic ice. You can't swim in that ice water, said the harpooner confidentially to me. You double up in a minute and go down. When a whale smashes your boat, the thing to do is to get your belly across an oar so that when the cold doubles you, you'll float. Sure, I said, 
with a grateful nod and an air of certitude that i too would hunt whales and be in smashed boats in the arctic ocean and truly i registered his advice as singularly valuable information and filed it away in my brain where it persists to this day but i couldn't talk at first heavens i was only fourteen and had never been on the ocean in my life i could only listen to the two sea-dogs and show my manhood by drinking with them fairly and squarely drink and drink the liquor worked its will with me the talk of scotty and the harpooner poured through the pent space of the idler's cabin and through my brain with great gusts of wide free wind and in imagination i lived my years to come and rocked over the wild mad glorious world on multitudinous adventures we unbent our inhibitions and taciturnities vanished we were as if we had known each other for years and years and we pledged ourselves to years of future voyagings together the harpooner told of misadventures and secret shames scotty wept over his poor old mother in edinburgh a lady he insisted gently born who was in reduced circumstances who had pinched herself to pay the lump sum to the shipowners for his apprenticeship whose sacrificing dream had been to see him a merchantman officer and a gentleman and who was heartbroken because he had deserted his ship in australia and joined another as a common sailor before the mast and scotty proved it he drew her last sad letter from his pocket and wept over it as he read it aloud the harpooner and i wept with him and swore that all three of us would ship on the whale-ship bonanza win a big payday and still together make a pilgrimage to edinburgh and lay our store of money in the dear lady's lap and as john barleycorn heated his way into my brain thawing my reticence melting my modesty talking through me and with me and as me my adopted twin brother and alter ego i too raised my voice to show myself a man and an adventurer and bragged in detail and at length of how i had crossed san francisco bay in my open skiff in a roaring sou'wester even when the schooner sailors doubted my exploit further i 
or Jorn Barleycorn, for it was the same thing, told Scotty that he might be a deep-sea sailor and know the last rope on the great deep-sea ships, but that when it came to small-boat sailing I could beat him hands down and sail circles around him. The best of it was that my assertion and brag were true. With reticence and modesty present, I could never have dared tell Scotty my small boat estimate of him. But it is ever the way of John Barleycorn to loosen the tongue and babble the secret thought. Scotty, or John Barleycorn, or the pair, was very naturally offended by my remarks. Nor was I loath. I could whip any runaway sailor seventeen years old. Scotty and I flared and raged like young cockerels, until the harpooner poured another round of drinks to enable us to forgive and make up, which we did, arms around each other's necks, protesting vows of eternal friendship, just like Black Matt and Tom Morrissey, I remembered, in the ranch kitchen in San Mateo. And remembering, I knew that I was at last a man, despite my meager fourteen years, a man as big and manly as those two strapping giants who had quarreled and made up on that memorable Sunday morning of long ago. By this time, the singing stage was reached, and I joined Scotty and the harpooner in snatches of sea songs and shanties. It was here, in the cabin of the idler, that I first heard, Blow the man down, flying cloud, and whiskey, Johnny, whiskey. Oh, it was brave. I was beginning to grasp the meaning of life. Here was no commonplace, no Oakland estuary, no weary round of throwing newspapers at front doors, delivering ice, and setting up nine-pins. All the world was mine, all its paths were under my feet, and John Barleycorn, tricking my fancy, enabled me to anticipate the life of adventure for which I yearned. We were not ordinary. We were three tipsy young gods, incredibly wise, gloriously genial, and without limit to our powers. Ah, and I say it now after the years, could John Barleycorn keep one at such a height, I should never draw a sober breath again. But this is not a world of free freights. One pays according to an iron schedule. For every strength, the balanced weakness. For every high, a corresponding low. 
for every fictitious godlike moment an equivalent time in reptilian slime for every feat of telescoping long days and weeks of life into mad magnificent instants one must pay with shortened life and oft times with savage usury added intenseness and duration are as ancient enemies as fire and water they are mutually destructive they cannot coexist and john barleycorn mighty necromancer though he be is as much a slave to organic chemistry as we mortals are we pay for every nerve marathon we run nor can john barleycorn intercede and fend off the just payment he can lead us to the heights but he cannot keep us there else would we all be devotees and there is no devotee but pays for the mad dances john barleycorn pipes yet the foregoing is all in after wisdom spoken it was no part of the knowledge of the lad fourteen years old who sat in the idler's cabin between the harpooner and the sailor the air rich in his nostrils with the musty smell of men's sea-gear roaring in chorus yankee ship come down de river pull my bully boys pull we grew maudlin and all talked and shouted at once i had a splendid constitution a stomach that would digest scrap iron and i was still running my marathon in full vigor when scotty began to fail and fade his talk grew incoherent he groped for words and could not find them while the ones he found his lips were unable to form his poisoned consciousness was leaving him the brightness went out of his eyes and he looked as stupid as were his efforts to talk his face and body sagged as his consciousness sagged a man cannot sit upright save by an act of will scotty's reeling brain could not control his muscles and his correlations were breaking down he strove to take another drink and feebly dropped the tumbler on the floor then to my amazement weeping bitterly he rolled into a bunk on his back and immediately snored off to sleep the harpooner and i drank on grinning in a superior way to each other over scotty's plight the last flask was opened and we drank it between us to the accompaniment of scotty's stertorous breathing then the harpooner faded away into his bunk and i was left alone unthrown on the field of battle i was very proud and john barleycorn was proud with me 
I could carry my drink. I was a man. I had drunk two men, drink for drink, into unconsciousness. And I was still on my two feet, upright, making my way on deck to get air into my scorching lungs. It was in this bout on the idler that I discovered what a good stomach and a strong head I had for drink, a bit of knowledge that was to be a source of pride in succeeding years, and that ultimately I was to come to consider a great affliction. The fortunate man is the one who cannot take more than a couple of drinks without becoming intoxicated. The unfortunate white is the one who can take many glasses without betraying a sign, who must take numerous glasses in order to get the kick. The sun was setting when I came on the idler's deck. There were plenty of bunks below. I did not need to go home but I wanted to demonstrate to myself how much I was a man. There lay my skiff astern. The last of a strong ebb was running out in channel in the teeth of an ocean breeze of forty miles an hour. I could see the stiff white caps, and the suck and run of the current was plainly visible in the face and trough of each one. I set sail, cast off, took my place at the tiller, the sheet in my hand, and headed across channel. The skiff heeled over and plunged into it madly. The spray began to fly. I was at the pinnacle of exultation. I sang, blow the man down, as I sailed. I was no boy of fourteen, living the mediocre ways of the sleepy town called Oakland. I was a man, a god, and the very elements rendered me allegiance as I bidded them to my will. The tide was out. A full hundred yards of soft mud intervened between the boat wharf and the water. I pulled up my centerboard, ran full tilt into the mud, took in sail, and standing in the stern, as I had often done at low tide, I began to shove the skiff with an oar. It was then that my correlations began to break down. I lost my balance and pitched head foremost into the ooze. Then, and for the first time, as I floundered to my feet, covered with slime, the blood running down my arms from a scrape against a barnacled stake, I knew that I was drunk. But what of it? Across the channel, two strong sailormen lay unconscious in their bunks where I had drunk them. I was a man. I was still in my legs, if they were knee-deep in mud. I disdained to get back into the skiff. I waded through the mud, 
shoving the skiff before me and yammering the chant of my manhood to the world. I paid for it. I was sick for a couple of days, meanly sick, and my arms were painfully poisoned from the barnacle scratches. For a week I could not use them, and it was a torture to put on and take off my clothes. I swore, never again. The game wasn't worth it. The price was too stiff. I had no moral qualms. My revulsion was purely physical. No exalted moments were worth such hours of misery and wretchedness. When I got back to my skiff, I shunned the idler. I would cross the opposite side of the channel to go around her. Scotty had disappeared. The harpooner was still about, but him I avoided. Once, when he landed on the boat wharf, I hid in a shed so as to escape seeing him. I was afraid he would propose some more drinking, maybe have a flask full of whiskey in his pocket. And yet, and here enters the necromancy of John Barleycorn, that afternoon's drunk on the idler had been a purple passage flung into the monotony of my days. It was memorable. My mind dwelt on it continually. I went over the details, over and over again. Among other things, I had got into the cogs and springs of men's actions. I had seen Scotty weep about his own worthlessness and the sad case of his Edinburgh mother, who was a lady. The harpooner had told me terribly wonderful things of himself. I had caught a myriad enticing and inflammatory hints of a world beyond my world, and for which I was certainly as fitted as the two lads who had drunk with me. I had got behind men's souls. I had got behind my own soul, and found unguessed potencies and greatnesses. Yes, that day stood out above all my other days. To this day it so stands out. The memory of it is branded in my brain. But the price exacted was too high. I refused to play and pay and return to my cannonballs and taffy slabs. The point is that all the chemistry of my healthy, normal body drove me away from alcohol. The stuff didn't agree with me. It was abominable. But despite this, circumstance was to continue to drive me toward John Barleycorn, to drive me again and again until, after long years, the time should come when I would look upon John Barleycorn in every haunt of men, 
look him up and hail him gladly as benefactor and friend and detest and hate him all the time yes he is a strange friend john barleycorn end of chapter six